Oh, it's just been a wonderful service so far and I just wanted to give you two verses uh, to lead us into our time of prayer. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Let's pray. Dear Father, you have proven your love for us by sending Jesus to be the light in our darkness. We thank you for this amazing gift which we'll celebrate even more on Christmas Day. We thank you also for the gift of light and all that it means for us. It was the first thing you created when the earth was without form and covered in darkness. You said, let there be light, and there was light. You spoke it into creation, and we have been blessed with it ever since. We know that light is used throughout scripture to symbolise your holiness and presence. And we think of Moses and the burning bush. When the angel made the announcement to the shepherds that a saviour had been born, they were surrounded by the light of your glory. And we can only wonder at the amazing experience of the disciples when they saw the glorious transfiguration of Jesus and heard you speak to them from the bright cloud. Jesus told us he is the light of the world and whoever follows him will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And we become overcome in silence when we think about the darkness once again covering the land during the crucifixion, when the light of the world was dying on the cross. But then you pierce the darkness in the most powerful and spectacular way in the resurrection, and we rejoice that the darkness has never and will never overcome the light. Your shining light guides, teaches and reveals the truth. All things become visible when they are exposed to your light. Help us to deal equally well with the positive and negative things shown to us by your spirit. Your revealing light exposes our sins so that we can repent and seek your forgiveness. Your word is a light to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to always seek your guidance through scripture. The fruit of your light is found in all goodness, righteousness and truth. May we always seek after those things. We live now between the two amazing lights, the light of Jesus and the light of his of the light of Jesus coming into the world and the light of his return. Before returning to heaven, Jesus said that we are now the light of the world, for us to let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Thank you that the Holy Spirit continues his transforming work in us to enable us to carry your light to the world around us, to the people who are still in darkness. Help us not to miss any opportunity you give us to do this. And we look forward to the wonderful day when Jesus will return when we will no longer have the sun for light by day nor the moon light by night, but we will have the Lord, you, Jesus, for an everlasting light and our God for our glory. We thank you for this everlasting promise. And Lord, we also thank you now for the decades of ministry by Pastor Bill and Kathy. We pray your blessing and anointing over him and the word he will bring us today. And we pray all these things in the magnificent name of Jesus. Amen. My pleasure now to invite Bill um, up here. Welcome, Bill. Uh, if you are new, uh, Bill is the Senior Minister of the Christian Family Centre Churches, and it's a, a privilege, Bill, considering all that's been happening for you and your family, that you're here with us. Uh, it's such a joy to have you amongst us, so welcome. Yeah, thanks. Good morning, everyone. It is uh, a great joy to be here and also uh, want to express thankfulness for those of you that were aware of my family going through a medical crisis for your prayers. And uh, the good news is my wife gets out of hospital sometime this week after 20 days. Uh, and so she had major surgery that went wrong <laughs> and the complications and sepsis and had to be put in intensive care and, 
uh, very complicated. The specialist said, you're so strong, Cathy. You're very resilient. He goes, other women could be in there for three months in intensive care. She was in there for just several days. So, uh, so thank the Lord that she's uh, good. And at the same time, can you believe it, uh, the oldest of the Vasilakis clan is in hospital, Cathy, 67, and the youngest, our baby, granddaughter Lenny, Tim and Nikki's little girl, she was rushed to hospital with sepsisemia as well. And uh, um, having scarlet fever, that turned bad, and uh, they um, saw the doctors on the 12 o'clock, put her on penicillin. By 6 o'clock, she crashed, had to rush her to hospital. And uh, from what we can work out, she probably wouldn't have made it if she didn't get into the women's and children on last Thursday night and Friday. So she's been in there. She's probably been there for another two weeks. So pretty serious stuff. So keep little Lenny in your prayers as well. Uh, she's, a, she's a little tiger. I rang this morning on the way here. And so last night, she pulled out her gastric juice tube out of her nose and, and uh, so she's a fire, that's good actually it's a good sign that she's firing up and, and uh, but uh, yeah so we had two in intensive care within so the last 20 days have been a bit of a blur um, but thank you for your prayers and appreciate you continuing to pray for the health of my family and uh, but I didn't want to miss being here, Cathy said no you go so after here I go and see her and um, so thank you for your prayers, and uh, God is good. He is merciful. I say prayers and pills go together, okay? And I've written about it in this book, Biblical Stability. Medical science and divine healing, complementary or contradictory? Complementary. The gift of medical science is a gift from God. And uh, 55 years ago, or actually 19, early 1940s when antibiotics came on through Howard Florey from Adelaide, both Cathy and Lenny would have died. Of, uh, uh, there was no way they could have got rid of that infection. So we take for granted, don't we, penicillin <laughs> and uh, the inventions that we have today. So thank God for the gift of medical science. It's uh, God's way, God's, a sign of God's love and goodness, isn't it? So we pray and we believe for the Spirit of God to move and we thank God that he's already moved through amazing knowledge and the gifts that he's given to us. And so I'm very thankful. And um, <laughs> one of the doctors, I've got to tell you this, is um, a lovely guy, but a bit outspoken about his lack of faith. <laughs> And so, not Kathy Specialist, he's a wonderful guy. So, one of the intensive care guys, beautiful, beautiful guy. But he's really upfront about, you know, you know, if God is good, why is all this stuff happening? And I just said to him, I said, man, you're talking to the wrong guy. I'm a pastor. And I said, and I'm going to tell you, I looked him in the eye and says, God has made you to be a healer. And I'm so thankful for you. You're a great doctor. What you've done for my wife. And he finally smiles. So I thought, oh, give him the gospel, even in his unbelief. I say, thank God for you. God has made you a healer, and you are doing his will here. He kind of looked at me and smiled and walked off. <laughs> but I don't think you'll ever forget that. Too many people are scared of the specialists. Not me. I'm only scared of Jesus and uh, fear him. So anyway, we had, we had some fun. And uh, we... Um, the other thing I want to say is a big thank you for your amazing generosity towards Pastor John Botang and his wife Mercy and uh, the, the way you've raised the money for the toilets. Isn't that right? In the school. You've got to see the school. Some of you must come with me. I've been there five times. It is an amazing work, a true apostolic work. Winning souls, planting churches, discipling people, releasing them to, and then setting up this school for the poor, basically for the poor. And the facility is terrific. So uh, some of you have been there, have you? Anyone been there? Come with me. It only costs you 6000 bucks to go there and back. That's okay. Frightfully expensive, but uh, it'd be great for a team from here. Um, and as you're aware, John was here and uh, just a few months ago. Did you tell him about how she was so sick when she was here? And what happened? Mercy. Yeah. Mercy was really sick and, uh, you know, and, and really sick. And so Kath was a bit worried being a, you know, a nurse educator and all that. And so 
And so they go back and they think, John's, so John's, I've got to take it to the doctors. They go to the specialist doctors and, and out comes the doctor with a smile and says, congratulations, you're four months pregnant. <laughs> Number seven on the way. They're catching up with you guys, hey. <laughs> She's only in her early 40s, plenty of years left. And so that shocked him a little bit. And um, <laughs> he didn't tell you that. Oh, maybe he hasn't told his church yet. Maybe he's too embarrassed. Keep it to yourself. If you're watching online, don't tell anyone. So uh, John, uh, John's a delightful guy. And, uh, uh, and so we have um, t- took up the special offering just a couple of weeks ago. And um, our goal was to raise $50,000 to help put the roof on. And they would raise fifteen. So far, we have raised nearly $60,000. You guys have put in five thousand over and above what you've what you've raised for the toilets. Uh, the, the team felt that's put in five grand also for the roof and the Seaton Church was on about fifty one thousand that we've raised and there's several hundred dollars or a couple of thousand coming in from our other churches. So so I rang John uh, the other night. Well, he just cried and laughed and uh, was so rejoicing. So they'll have that roof finished. By the end of January, they've got to do it. So, uh, so thank you for your generosity. And a, a sign of a healthy church really is that it doesn't just focus on its own needs, but always considers the poor, considers the prisoners, considers the sick. And that area of Abusi in the Takarati area, southern, southwest Ghana, the average wage for the fishermen there is about $2 a day. You think about that, that's $700 we earn more than that in one week, don't we? What's the average wage? Thousand? Fifteen hundred? I don't know what it is, but but that's dirt poor. So for them to raise fifteen hundred dollars to help put the roof on, they couldn't have put they couldn't have been able to raise it. So thank you for considering the poor and the needy. And uh, and if you get the opportunity to go there, and some of the teachers here, and to go into the school, it's it's actually quite quite thrilling to see uh, what the Lord is doing there and the church. I want to share some thoughts uh, today on the theme of being anchored, being strong and steadfast. Oh, how we need to be strong and steadfast. Folks, we're all in this ship of life. And from time to time, we hit some unpredictable storms, unexpected circumstances. I've faced that in the last <laughs> couple of weeks. And, um, and folks, ships do sink if they're not properly anchored when the waves start hitting, or if they're not moored securely in the dock, they can be extremely damaged. And, you know, we have to be anchored as believers. We need to be anchored as local churches. And our God's word, God's word is our guiding compass, and it always points us to Jesus, who is our true north in all matters to do with this life of ours and to do with an understanding of his his plan and his purposes. And so um, one of the reasons why I've written my latest book, Biblical Stability, I've only brought 19 copies with me today, so first in, first serve, but I I put this together. It's taken me a long time to actually do it. Um, Not that I've been reluctant, it's just that I've seen so many things in the, I've been a Christian in Pentecostal Christian for 52 years. I got saved in 1971. And this is now, I'm just finishing 45 years in leading the Christian family center. Can you believe it? What were they thinking putting a 14 year old in charge of the church back then? <laughs> and, um, and so in those 50 plus years, and some of you have been around longer, I've witnessed within the Pentecostal charismatic and evangelical scene about 20 different false teachings and extreme emphases that come through and every one of those when churches have got caught up with them and pastors and leaders it has got their eyes off Jesus off the gospel so I loved the story Sue that was great so who needs me here? She just preached the gospel. I just felt, I, I asked, who is this girl? I said, oh, she's a teacher. I said, I just thought, you have a gift. I didn't realise you're a teacher. 
But I'm sitting there as an adult, nearly 70, you captured me. You got the kids, but you got me involved. That's a gift. It's more than just being a professional teacher. That's a spiritual gift that you've got. So exploit it. If you don't, you're going to rob the body of Christ from your understanding of the gospel. And it's not just your content, but how you communicate. So we've got to have substance, but you've got to have style. There's nothing like... There's nothing worse than a boring preacher that puts everyone to sleep. Well, you didn't put us to sleep. You woke me up. So you've got a gift there. So use it, not just in, I didn't realise you are a teacher, in your teaching profession, but use it for the kingdom. Exploit it, develop it. Because you got me in. Did she get you in? She's very good. So uh, that's a word of encouragement for you, okay? Uh, now I've lost track. <laughs> You've got to stick with Jesus and be, make sure you're biblically grounded. Don't deviate. Every one of these 20 emphases, and I've put them in here, is they misinterpret Scripture. They, they kind of make, instead of seeing the forest, they see one, one tree. They go, oh, this is what, what it's all about. No, it's not. The Bible is centers around the person of Jesus and his mission. And to proclaim the gospel of salvation, to see men and women come to faith, discipling them, releasing them to, to function as ministers in the church and missionaries in the world, to plant churches, to do missions. Every one of these emphases, the churches that embraced them lost ground. They, they lost focus. They went off scripture, so, so their guiding compass, and their true north were gone. And that's why I've listed these things down. And... and I mean, one of these doctrines, and uh, very few would remember it, Pastor David and Pastor Mike and Pastor Bev would remember this, the tabernacle of David teaching in the early 70s, late 60s, came out of New Zealand. And, um, and I thought it was dead and buried, so I included it here. The tabernacle of David is a, a weird interpretation of a wonderful text when David danced before the ark of the Lord. Remember, he stripped down to almost his nothing. He did have something on. And, uh, and his wife kind of despised him. You know, kind of like, what are you doing, you silly thing? You're the king. What are you doing dancing and, and all that stuff? And, and so people grabbed that story, linked it in with Acts chapter 3 and Romans 8, and came up with a doctrine that says to be a genuine Christ follower, you've got to, you, you, unless you worship the way that David worshiped, which is dancing, you really haven't got it. You're not really in. Oh, you're okay as a Christian, but you're not really a super Christian. And it divided churches. I remember Pastor David Smyth saying to me, he called it jogging for Jesus. <laughs> and it was weird. One major denomination had to meet in conference to avoid a split over how high you lifted your feet in worship. How ridiculous. How, what about people that don't have legs? What about people who are disabled? What about the elderly? Oh, they can't dance, so therefore they're not really in the spirit. They're not really flying. And yet it caused terrible division. Rob Gallagher said to me, Dr. Rob Gallagher, professor of, of missiology at Wheaton University, a dear friend, CRC pastor, he says, Bill, I've just been in Asia. This is about a year ago. He says, can you believe that the tabernacle of David is resurrected? I said, you're kidding me. This is true because I thought it was dead and buried. And so dividing this church, something beautiful in worship has become a legalistic system. I go to Greece, minister there. And the organisation I'm with, they've planted this church in Crete and others. And they tell me the anti-women brigade have arisen. And so elders split because a woman was used in preaching or song leading or whatever. And I'm thinking, where do these nonsensical doctrines come from? Misinterpreting scripture. So I've got a whole section there. How do you interpret the whole notion that there's an equality in the kingdom? Men and women are equal and they're to serve the Lord, whether they're on boards, whether they're as pastors, whether they're as lead pastors, there's no restrictions on women. And all the men said, oh, guys, you've got to encourage the women. All the men said, yay, we love women, don't we? We want them released in ministry. Oh, I better be careful what I say here. And uh, so, so I, I talk about that one. Um, I go to Papua New Guinea and the legalists have come back trying to, intro, trying to marry law with grace and somehow that 
instead of understanding the law's purpose was to, to reveal Christ to us that we can't fulfill the law, he fulfilled it for us and he died on the cross and paid the penalty as, as uh, we heard in the story of Isaiah. And yet there, they're kind of, they're even wearing Israeli robes, a couple of churches. They're even raising money so that the old temple can be built, rebuilt. The Christ is going to come back, but the temple's got to be rebuilt. I'm thinking, God's never wanted to live in a building. He's never wanted to live in a tent. He's always wanted to live in your bodies. The only reason why he couldn't live in your body is because of sin. And the issue of sin was dealt with through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Hallelujah. And so God wants to live in people and to be with them and to change their hearts. And yet they're trying to bring weird doctrine. So, and mark my words, they keep coming back every few years. There's a whole pile of others. Uh, when, when the Toronto blessing came, some of you remember that, the new move of the spirit. Man, that caused division. That caused terrible division. And uh, within, um, I remember again, Pastor David Smythe said to me, I didn't take it seriously. And he goes, Bill, this is the big one. It's going to cause division. I said, you're kidding me. And it did. We had a group at the Seton Church that set up a clandestine prayer meeting that God would change my heart. That, that the church wouldn't miss out on what God is now doing. Change Pastor Bill's heart that he would embrace this thing. So we'll have people rolling on the ground laughing, falling over, doing all kinds of strange things, barking and making animal noises and, and all the weird stuff. Well, Billy Vasilakis has never been into that. And, and I wouldn't touch it with a 40-foot pole. I want the real stuff. I want salvations. I want healings of the sick. I want baptisms in the spirit with speaking in new languages. I want demons cast out. I want prophetic words. I want disciples made, churches planted. Who wants extra biblical stuff? I'm too excited doing the biblical stuff. I just want the, I just want the signs that Jesus said should follow the preaching of the gospel. And so anyway, all those people who in that prayer group are no longer walking with Jesus, one of them burst into my office. I'm busy doing my work. I don't know how he got in. The guards must have been asleep. <laughs> Burst in the office and he falls on the ground, screaming. And I'm there, what the heck is going on? He's screaming to me, saying, Pastor Bill, the Holy Spirit has left the church. And I said, he has? <laughs> I said, when? He goes, last Sunday. I said, how do you know? I saw him. What happened? He goes, he went straight out the big window in the auditorium. And I nearly burst out laughing. And I thought, <laughs> I had to control myself because he, he was serious. He really believed it. And I just said, man, if that's true, we're in a lot of trouble. That means we're unsaved. But he believed it. And he was getting others agitating because I wouldn't embrace the stuff that was separate to the main game. And so the Christian Family Centre, we've never embraced this stuff. Never embraced it. Don't want it. We just want more of Jesus. I'm, I'm still struggling to understand Jesus. I'm still trying to explore the cross, the wonder of grace and salvation and how to make disciples and how to better develop people and how to build really strong, loving, healthy churches that love people and do mission. And so, But you've got to believe churches that get distracted. And so I've, I've listed these down. Now, I know you're all going to rush to buy this book now. Uh, if we run out, we'll get some other copies. But... To me, if we're not anchored properly, churches go amiss and our individual lives go amiss. But if we're grounded in Scripture, in the Bible, and centred on Jesus, he is our guiding compass. The Bible is our guiding compass and our true north. Now, let me give you a Scripture. I better give you a Scripture. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Oh, it's up there. It's nothing up the back there that I can see. So I've got to turn around. Okay, you can't stick it back there, can you? Oh, it's down here. Oh, well, you guys are really ahead. I don't even have this at Seton. <laughs> I think I'll just take this back and say, guys, get something like that. That's good. This is Paul writing to his trainee pastor, Timothy. It's a wonderful passage. And he, he gives us some insight here. He says, but as for you, Tim... Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. Your mum and grandma, Lois, Eunice. And how from infancy, from a little bubby, you have known the holy scriptures 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He's basically saying the Holy Scripture's purpose is to reveal Jesus Christ. To point, they point to him and they reveal him as the saviour of the world and as your personal saviour to be received by faith by putting our dependency upon who he is and what he's done for us through his cross and resurrection. And then he goes on to say, okay, so we're saved by the grace of God as we place our faith in Jesus who died on a cross for us to deal with our sins. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet as your saviour, don't leave today without opening your heart and saying, I need Jesus as my saviour. He loves you. He came to earth to reveal God the Father to you. As you read the Gospels, you see, man, this is the, this God I like. He is a good God. He dies on a cross to deal with the impassable barrier between you, imperfect, sinful, with a perfect, sinless God. And the only way that we can see God the Father and experience his love and grace and not feel guilty, full of shame and fear, is as we go through the bridge of the cross. The cross hung between heaven and earth. And as his blood was shed, it covered your sin, past, present and future. And the only way you can be saved is by putting your trust in him who did it for you. You can't save yourself. And this is what Paul says. He goes, Timothy, he goes, these are able to, to make you wise for salvation, the scriptures, through faith in Christ. But notice what else he says. He then begins telling us, What's the next step? Once you've come to faith, what happens now? He says this, all scripture, in verse 16 and 17, all scripture from Genesis to Revelation is inspired by God and is useful. So in other words, it's the very word of God. It's the very word of God. Even the errors in the Bible are the very word of God. There's some errors in there. There's some exaggerations in there. But it's the very word of God. You read the four Gospels and you think, did Matthew, Mark, Luke, did they get it all wrong? Some said this was on the sign of the cross. Some said these words. Some said those words. There were there two angels. Were there one angel, one man? Who cares? These guys wrote it 40 years after the event. The fact that the Gospels are so similar is a miracle power of memory so they've got a few things wrong that to me proves the authenticity of it because if it was a stitch-up job they all would have got together and said oh what did you write about what was what the sign of the cross was and, and how many were the... no 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 the fact that God preserved the individuality of the writers and because their recall was amazing wasn't totally accurate speaks of authenticity so even the errors are inspired by God they speak of authenticity to us Genesis can't be, people read Genesis. When I was at university and I'm leading this Christian group, a revival, and we had some real extremists and these guys were into the creation research science people and they're trying to prove, make, you know what they, they really made, to be really saved is you've got to believe that the earth is less than 10,000 years old and that the creation was literal seven days. And I said, wow, you really believe that? I said, I just see it as poetic language, beautiful language, the very word of God. But I said, seriously, do you think that God took seven literal days to make everything? God could just thinks and speaks and chum, and you think he got tuckered out on the final day, I'm tired, I need to have a rest. I don't think so. I think God's trying to communicate to us in, in, in a poetic song to help us understand that he is the uncaused cause. He was there from the beginning. He made the heavens and the earth. He's the author. How long he took and how he did it, I wouldn't have a clue. Genesis 1 is not meant to be a scientific textbook. You can't use the scientific method to interpret Genesis. You can't use the his, his, historiographical, historiographical principles to, to understand Genesis. It's not meant to be history. It's not meant to be science. It's a theological statement. It's God's love letter to us in the first 11 chapters to say, I was there in the beginning. I made everything. Something went wrong. Let me explain to you the snake story. Was that a literal snake? I don't know. I think it's language to help us understand there's a real devil. There's real evil. That came into the world. God said, I'm going to start again. Noah, no. 
Then, then it finishes after 11 chapters, and I think, give me more. Give me 111 chapters about the beginnings. No, that's enough for you. Then he says, I'll choose one man and one family, the rest of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And through that one man, I'm going to save the world through his lineage. So that's how I see Genesis. Other people, so they were trying, and they were having arguments with the physics department and the biology department. And I'm saying, guys, just talk about Jesus. Don't worry about the, all that stuff. I said, get people to Jesus. I said, I believe the Genesis record because Jesus believed it. He took it. He, you know, Jesus accepts. So I accept Genesis as being the very word of God. But I've got to understand it in the kind of literature it is. And if you study literature, it's the same as the Mesopotamian stories, the same as Egyptian literature. The, the writers, Moses and others, the editors, they made sure... They communicated in language that was relevant. So we have to understand that. So it's the very word of God. So you take King David. We love David, don't we? We think he's fantastic. But he was a hopeless husband and a shocking father. And you wouldn't want to take the story of King David and build a marriage course out of it (laughs) or family dynamics. No way. He was hopeless as far as a husband's concerned and and a disaster as a father. So you don't start with David to develop a theology of intimacy. You start with Jesus and with Paul or Joshua or ethics. Yes, we're going to come up with an ethical framework regarding violence and war. True? You want to take Joshua who exterminated men, women and children in Canaan? Like, what? No, 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 no. We start with the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about loving your enemy. Does that mean Joshua, the story of Joshua, is not the very word of God? Of course it's the very word of God, but it's got to be interpreted within the context, within the background, within the history, with an understanding of what was going on. And so some people take passages right out of context and misrepresent it. And so that's why it's so important for us to be biblically grounded, folks, and to become aware of, uh, of some of the excesses. And he says here, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful, notice this, to teach us what is true and make us realise what is wrong in our lives. How like that. So once you've got saved through faith, he says to Timothy, now God's given you the scripture, Genesis right through to, to Revelation. It's all useful to teach you what is true and to make you realise what is wrong in your life. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God used it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And that's why it's so important to read the Bible each day. We try, we try and cover the whole Bible and we do a chapter a day and to read it and, and, to, and to soap yourself, get a lather, you know, in the morning, this morning. Should have seen me in the bath. Washed my hair. I mean, there was soap everywhere. Every bit of broken skin, any bit of... It all went. I'm as clean as a whistle. You need to soap yourself up every day with the word. Get a chapter. Read it. Scripture, S. Oh, observe it. Say, God. And then say, is there something there that I can apply to myself? A, S, O, A. And P, pray through it. And I would sooner you read for 15 minutes prayerfully one chapter and, and, and read it in context and apply it to yourself. You will grow than to try and read 15 chapters and it goes in one eyeball and out the other and doesn't stay there. It doesn't work. I've tried that. I'd sooner you spend 15 minutes or half an hour and you need the word of God from Genesis 1 through to, to the end of Revelation. How we need it. And he's to... to that's the only way the Spirit can, can affect change in our lives. So in God's world, the world that we live in, there are three main authorities that shape us and we learn to serve Jesus through them. These authorities are the family. For personal growth and security, by loving, stable parents, we need the family is sacrosanct. As far as the scripture is concerned, it, it's, it's, it's one of the, the main authorities 
by which wholeness and healing and stability can occur. And I'm so thankful that I had magnificent parents, traditional Greek parents. Never saw my mum and dad fight. Never. He loved her and she respected him and loved him back. And uh, uh, I grew up in, I felt totally safe and secure and always loved. Amazing. My wife came from the exact opposite. Now, mine was not a Christian family. Cats were a Christian family, Pentecostal Christian family, but they hid their sins. He was violent towards my wife. He used to hurt her really badly. He sexually abused two of his daughters, one from the first marriage, then from the second marriage, Kath's younger sister. This has all become public. They testified on it. So Kathy, when she married me, and uh, one of the reasons why she wanted to marry me, she loved my family. She really loved... She wanted to become Greek. She loved my dad and mum. And, um, but there was a great big hole in her heart. Her understanding of God the Father was, was, was messed up because her own dad was such a poor example. And so one of the things that she said to me years after, she goes, she goes one of the things that brought healing to me, that there were three men at the door, older men, Dr. Thompson, Mr. Redman, and uh, Mr. Highland, all in their 650s, 60s. And in those days, and we don't do it now, the old boys were the, the, the doorkeepers, and so girls and women that would come in, they'd say, oh, hi, love, give them a hug and a kiss, okay? Well, we don't do that now, so fellas, if you want to become doorkeepers to kiss the girls, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but Kathy said, the fact that I observed those men, I'm 22, pastor's wife, I'm so messed up, but those men, I saw how they loved their wives. I saw how they cared for their kids. I saw how they ministered love to the people. And she goes, that brought healing to me. I said, sweetheart, wasn't my messages? She goes, sorry, it was those three old boys. <laughs> so some of you older men, some of you older women, that in itself is God can use you to bring healing to people that have come from devastating family of origin situations. That's my wife. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that all families do it right, but the norm is that God wants families to be for growth and for security and for parents to be loving, stable parents. If you're in a situation where you've been traumatised by family Jesus can bring healing to you. He can reveal God the Father as the perfect Father. And there can be men and women in your life that can just give you spiritual hugs and emotional hugs and speak into your life and provide the healing that you need. And uh, so, so don't be discouraged. In fact, Kathy's story is in my book, The Me I Can Be, Chapter 3. She shares her story. And uh, when she wrote it up, and, and I, said, oh, I, need a, I said, I need a testimony. And I was thinking, she goes, I want to do mine. I said, no, you do. So she wrote it up, and I read it, and I cried. And I said, sweetheart, you really want this to go in print? She goes, yep. I said, you sure? It's forever. <laughs> she says, yep, I've got to tell the story of how, how the Lord brought healing into her, her soul. And she was brought up in a Pentecostal home. The practice of religion... The mother was beautiful. The dad was hypocritical, inconsistent. And, uh, and so families, whether in the church or outside the church, need to be wonderful examples. So that's the major, one of the major means by which God provides that we, we um, are shaped. Secondly, the church, for spiritual growth by serving God and others. The church has to be the pillar of truth, the place where the love of Christ flows. That's why I wrote the book to think, I hate it when churches divide. Here in Adelaide in the last six months, two churches have exploded. One an evangelical church. The pastor's older than me. He's been around for a long time. He retired, put in a new guy, didn't like him, came back in. It's not a Pentecostal church. Church of 500 people, successful, got their own school, destroyed it, down to 100 people. Didn't like the pastor, didn't like some of his views. So all the pastors, all the elders resigned and people are... I mean, that is nutsville. That is disordered. That's not the biblical pattern. Then you have another church, a Pentecostal church, where the pastor is a bully. 
He bullied people. And no one can work with him. So they had to get rid of him. He is very gifted, brilliant. But nobody could work with him. You work with him, you, you have to become a disciple of his, not a disciple of Jesus. That's basically the bottom line. It's very cultic. I don't want anyone being my disciple. That's why I tell everyone my sins, my mistakes. So you don't really want to be my disciple. I want to make you a disciple of Jesus. Don't you be a follower of me. I try and live consistently. I said, but you'll be disappointed. Anyone that comes on staff at the Christian Family Center, Seton, I, I sit down and say, now, listen, you see me on the platform. I said, but now you're going to see me during the week when I'm a bit cranky or I'm upset. I said, so how are you going to handle that? So I tell them, I tell them all that. I said, and you need to talk to my wife and kids to find out the true story of what I'm really like. I said, I'm not inconsistent. I said, but don't put me on a pedestal that I'm like Jesus. I'm not. I'm a human being and I have weaknesses and I want you to be a follower of Jesus, not a follower of mine. This guy wanted everyone to be a follower of his and he ended up doing himself in. Yet he's a gifted man. Church should be for spiritual growth as we serve the Lord and serve others. I've been doing it for 50, this is my 46th year I'm entering into, and I love serving God and loving people. I'm not sick of it. There's nothing more exciting than, than being involved in the body of Christ. You say, all the people, do you love us? I love them all, even the funny ones, the difficult ones, the ones that cause you pain. What does 1 Corinthians 12 say? Paul says, honour the uncomely parts. The ones that are difficult, give them greater honour. Love them. We've got a stack of people in the church seat that, are, that, are, that have got significant mental health issues. I mean, they are a challenge, some of them. But they're beautiful people, wonderful people. We've got one lady, and I, I won't, she just gives me grief. But I've got to remind myself that if I went through what she went through and had the brain damage that she's had, I'd be ten times worse. So we, we make huge, we embrace them and say, hey, you know what? We're there to love all people. doesn't mean to say you have to condone sin and, and bad behaviour. No, no. But I'm saying you, you, we have to be the best lovers in all the world, far greater than any, any social group out there, the church of Jesus, filled with the love of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can serve others and grow. And thirdly, the state. For growing in social orderliness by becoming law-abiding citizens. That's the third authority. The family, the church, and the state. And, um, and in my book, I talk a bit about that. You know, there's different Christian attitudes towards the state. Oh, you know, it was like, heck. You know, when we had the COVID crisis, I had people really reacting to not wanting to obey the government and not wanting to do this and that. And and, and, and as head of the CRC, we had to make a statement. We said to our, our national executive, we said, listen, about six pastors said, that said, no, we're not going to obey the state, not going to obey. Not an issue of whether they themselves would be inoculated. That's a different matter. That's a personal choice if people choose not to. But to disobey the state? And we just said, well, one, our insurers have said, you're on your own. If something went wrong and someone got ill and died because of you not leading the church, said, you're on your own. The movement won't take responsibility. And secondly, we're called to obey the law of the land. And, and so, um, so I, I said to people, I said, look, if, if, if a pastor or leaders choose not to be inoculated and the state said you had to be in certain areas, like school teachers, some of them lost their job, but they didn't want to be inoculated. And I think, well, that's okay. They're free to do not to be inoculated. I don't think the government should force that, but they've got to accept the consequences that if you don't do it, you lose your job. Simple as that. Simple as that. So you think, okay, the state, Caesar, says this. Okay, it's not... When I was in, as a young, young boy, the Vietnam War was raging. The people of Australia voted twice in 1966 and 1969 by overwhelming majorities that we've got to go in there and kill the communists before they come and kill us. The theory was... You know, the, if, if South Vietnam fell, so will Malaya, so will Indonesia, so will Australia. It was a theory. Every American president, every prime minister held that theory. My dad didn't. He said, nah, it's a civil war. 
He goes, I'm anti-communist. If they invade Australia, I'll fight too. He goes, but son, you're going to be a conscientious objector if you get caught up. So thankfully, change of government occurred in 1972. I didn't get caught up. But, uh, but my church, which I loved, basically obeyed the government. I said, well, you know, all good Christians obey the government. And so therefore, if we've got to fight, we've got to go and fight. And so I'm the odd man out. I think, what do I do? I love my church. I love my pastors. But they were very following the government. And my dad and mum, their politics was very much left of centre. They, were, they loved Arthur Caldwell, the head of the Labor Party, and loved Gough Whitlam. And so we were, we were just, you know... And so I'm fighting. So I had to make the decision that if I got called up, I'd go to jail. I didn't get out there saying, I'm going to change the government by revolution, I'm going to disobey. If I choose to disobey, I've got to accept the consequences of what will involve. And that means my dad said, don't worry, son, because you go to jail, I'll visit you every week, you'll be okay. (laughs) So we're called to obey the government, but there are issues of conscience that we feel, you know what, no, I can't do that. But then you've got to accept the consequences of that. Again, my dear old dad, um, the government tried to rob him in 1948. He owned the road that goes into the airport. He and another Greek man, they owned about 12 acres between Henley Beach Road and Burbage Road. He owned the land. Built market gardens. He'd worked for seven years as a fisherman, saved 2,000 pounds from Streaky Bay before he was married. And he and another guy, and they, they got this land. <laughs> the government came and said, we need the land. We've got to build a road. Got to go to the airport, the new airport, you know that? And Dad couldn't even speak English. So they just gave him a piece of paper and said, I don't know what that is. So he, he goes to a legal firm and gives it to them. So I'll just leave it with us, Mr Vasilakis. And anyway, so 1954, six years later, the year that I was born, the tractors turned up, the bulldozers to knock down his house and the glass houses, everything like that. And Dad comes in and goes, what are you doing? He goes, oh, we come to knock everything down. He goes, you can't do that, I live here. And I said, well, I said, but don't you know that this is the government's acquired it? Because no, it hasn't. It belongs to me. Because what are you talking about? So anyway, the guys were really embarrassed. So Dad goes to the legal firm and shares what happened. And he just happened, the young lawyer who took on his case, her name was Roba Mitchell. <laughs> Strong Catholic, becomes governor of South Australia. And Roma checks all this out. They wanted to pay him 1948 prices, not 1954. No compensation for losing... And she goes, Mr Vasilakis, we're going to court. She goes, what do you mean? Because we're taking the government to court. But Dad, you don't do that in Greece. They lock you up if you even say that. He took the government to court and won. The judge slammed him and said, you will pay him 1954 prices. You will pay him however long it takes him to buy other land and compensate him for the fact he's not going to be able to work the land, pull down his glass house. You'll pay him all that. My dad came out going, what a country. What a country. You can take the government to court and win. So I'm not somebody who says, look, the government's imperfect. It's made up imperfect people. Okay? The institutions of government are really important. And we are to obey, but it doesn't violate conscience. But we have to work that through. So, so for some of you here, maybe just what I'm sharing might, might be helpful for you to understand this. And so these three authorities, to function properly, I think, as God intends, Jesus, his son, needs to be acknowledged as the supreme ruler in all three domains. And if he's not the supreme ruler in the family or in the church, or even in the state. The state says he is. They do the Lord's Prayer in every parliament. They verbally submit to him on a daily basis. Do they practice it? Very few of them. But our whole system was built around the fact that Jesus is the ultimate authority and we're to submit to him. And so when it comes to these matters, let me just conclude by by saying a couple of things. Jesus and family life. If you would like me to marry you, if you're single and you're saying, oh, Pastor Bill, could you do this marriage preparation? People don't come to me now for marriage preparation because the word's got out. All he does, he preaches to us. What do I preach to them about? Jesus. 
I just tell them, I say, guys, you love each other? It's not enough. You love her, she loves her. There's got to be a third person in your marriage. And they look at me and go, what? You are become Muslim or something. There's got to be a third person. You've got to love that person more than you love her. And that person's name is Jesus. And said, so if he ain't at the very centre of your lives and your marriage, you ain't going to make it. 50% of our marriages fall over. Within the church, I can count on, on, on both hands the number of people whose marriages haven't made it who love Jesus, read the scripture, follow the scripture, attend church, worship. Very rare where Jesus is at the very centre of their lives. But those who that don't put Jesus at the very centre, they fall over. And you can read all the scriptures that talk about husband and wife roles. And all the time, Paul is saying Jesus has to be at the very centre. When it comes to... to uh, um, Family life, what about our spiritual life, our social life? That's the government life, our spiritual. Let me just say this, finish with this scripture before we take communion. Jesus in our spiritual life, in the church. He says, now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. Not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body and it's made up, made, it's made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Look at this word in Colossians 3. How strong this word is. If you're part of the body of Christ, this is, he's speaking to the Colossians, but he's speaking to us. So since God chose you to be holy, Jesus is the head of all things. He's the head of the church. He's the head of our lives, head of our marriage, head of our government, head of our... What about you personally? Since God chose you to be the, to be the holy, called-out people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility gentleness and patience. These are the clothes you should put on. After you come out the shower, as you put on your clothes, he's actually saying, he's using this as a metaphor, you've got to clothe yourselves with these kinds of things to meet the day. Tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. If you're going to be biblically grounded, Christ-centred, people-loving, there are eight words Four phrases. In fact, some of my people are saying in the seat, you've got to write this up as a book, another one. And I think if I called the book, I'd say eight words, four phrases for a happy life, fulfilled relationships. And that is accept difference at a profound level. Accept difference. You can't be married if you don't accept that your husband is a male and that your wife is a female. The chromosomes are different. The brain structures are different. The emotional centres are different. If you're going to complain about how your wife is, well, you should have married yourself. <laughs> how boring that would be. We are different. Got to accept different. Take me. I'm an ethnic Greek male. You can't take that out of me. My first language was Greek. Come from a structured family. Kathy, a chaotic family. You think that was a recipe for harmony? <sighs> We're heading for divorce within five years. If Jesus wasn't at the very centre of our lives. We, we, we... I had to come to a place where I accepted difference. I had to accept that 
that's who she is. She's a woman. I love her. She has that family of origin. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Bill, if you had a dad like she did, you'd be ten times worse. And it was true. So therefore I had to have compassion for her. I had to accept the difference. Otherwise we wouldn't have made it. Cover weakness. You have weaknesses. I'm not talking about sins. I'm talking about weaknesses. You have weaknesses. And if you want harmonious relationship, if you think you're to be the ferret to, to anyone that shows a weakness, you're going to sort them out. Well, you're going to be very lonely in your marriage, in your family life, in your relationships, because all of us have weaknesses. And if you're going to function properly, you've got to do what Noah's two boys did. Remember what they did? The one boy, he laughs at his dad because his dad got drunk. 120 years of preaching and no one got saved. 120 years of preaching and no one got saved. And everyone's dead. And he comes out. I think I'd be a little depressed too. So what did he do? Well, he grew a vineyard. Oh, glass of wine, nice. Wine was legal. But depression makes you drink four or five, illegal. He's as drunk as a skunk, stark naked. The tent flap is open. And one of the boys comes in and goes, oh, the old man. And he says to the other boy, you got to come and see the old boy. You haven't seen him in his birthday suit ever. Look at him now. The other two boys, what they do? They grab the towel. They walk backwards, wouldn't even look at their dad and covered his nakedness. <coughs> We've got to cover each other's nakedness. You can't function in life unless you have one blind eye and one deaf ear. Some of you need to blind yourselves and deafen yourself. Because you see things and you want to take action. Don't. Cover your wife's weaknesses. Cover your husband's weaknesses. Cover your kids' weaknesses. I see things and hear things all the time and I go, Whoa, I shouldn't have seen that. I didn't hear that. Oh, no, no, no. I to put that aside. I'm not going... You've got to cover weakness. Thirdly, you've got to forgive trespass. We're going to come around the Lord's table. And because the people who can hurt you the most are the ones that you love the most. It's true. The Queen said that. Well, there's great love. There's great, great opportunity for pain. The people that love you the most are the ones that can hurt you the most. So if I'm walking down the street at night and I'm carrying a whole pile of money, someone comes up behind me and knocks me on the head with a 4 by 2 knocks me out, steal the money, police come, Ah, oh, Pastor Vasilakis, we found it, who did it? Oh, and they bring him to me. It's a total stranger, I don't know him. He's a common thief. and he's... Well, my head will heal, but I've got no relationship with him, so he hasn't really hurt me. But if they brought Sam Barnes and said he did it, I'm like, what? Sam, if you needed a rise, you just had to ask. So my head might heal, but it might take years for my heart to heal. Why? Because somebody who I love and who loves has done the wrong thing. So some of you are hurting because people you love have really hurt you. And if you've let unforgiveness in or a, a, and a root of bitterness starts, it's going to do you in. It'll shipwreck your faith. You've got to find the grace of God and the forgiveness of Christ. You know, I, I came to a point where I knew I was going to I was, I was miss out big time. I, I really developed a hatred for Kathy's father, deep hatred, because of the hurt that I was experiencing because of the hurt of my wife. And I, and I just knew that I was, oh, this, this is really, I'm thinking about him. And, and you know, he should have gone to jail and we, we confronted him to, should have been arrested, but there were statutes of limitations and he couldn't, they couldn't charge him, all that stuff. But... Um, I remember I had to come to a point and the Lord again spoke to my heart and said, if it wasn't for that sinful old man who was made in my image and who my son died for, he chose to behave like a devil, but that wasn't God's purpose. If it wasn't for him, you wouldn't have your wife, you wouldn't have your four kids, you wouldn't have your nine grandkids. Now, whoa. So therefore... 
I had to come to a place where I forgave him, not endorsed what he did. He still should have been arrested and put in jail, but, but the vengeance, take, the sort of vengeance taken out of my hand, it's in the hands of the state, not in our hands. That's what Jesus was saying. Is, you know, Caesar wields the sword. We don't in this age until perfect justice comes. And I came to the place where I actually could see his visage and pray for him. And to the point where I went to see him with another pastor and we tried to, before he dies, to say, you've got to come to Christ. You've got to repent of your sins. Those girls need to know. Tell them the truth that you did it. Let them off the hook. You know, and, and he just wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. But I could look him in the eye and I had no hatred for him and just had pity. But I'd forgiven him. But I knew that it was a tough gig for me to forgive him. But I had to be reminded, the Lord forgave me my sins. That's why we forgive. We we must accept difference, cover weakness, forgive trespass, and then spend your life building trust by little considerations and little acts of kindness. If you think you've lost it with somebody, there's no trust, You've got to rebuild that trust by dying to your feelings and, and being kind. Make an investment of kindness. Make it be, become generous. And as you, you build, it's a little string. You know, ropes are made of tiny little strings. And, an act of kindness, an act of consideration, an act of, of generosity. Gradually, you can win a person over and trust can rebuild. So you cannot, I can love a person and forgive a person and not trust them. It's foolish to say, I trust the person who, who you know, hit me over the head. You know, oh, come and become my best buddy. No, but I can't hate them. But trust takes time. For some of you that have got rendered relationships, just take the initiative. Pray for them. Think good things about them. Do an act of kindness. Start building. Don't expect everything to come back. But that's how you build harmonious relationships. Let's stand together. Loving Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have just to share the word and to be honest and upfront about these big issues of life. Lord, as we take communion together now, we want to do business with you. As we take the emblems that speak to us of love in action, that speak to us of the gift of forgiveness that comes through the death of Christ on our behalf, as we accept that we've been forgiven of all of our sins, that he's accepted us, that he has covered our weaknesses, that he's forgiven our trespasses, that he's helping us to build trust. I pray do something wondrous within the hearts of people today that are in need. I pray this in Jesus' name. As we take communion, I think this left row first. You come first and and if you're one of our guests, if you're one of our guests here today and and this table is the Lord's table, it's not our table, and he invites you to, you know, if you're struggling with faith as you eat and drink, just put your trust in him and, and receive him as saviour. Or if you've got issues that have been happening, don't think, oh, I'm not good enough for the communion. It's there for you to, to renew your relationship with God and with others. And so, so come and grab the wine and the bread and just go back to your seat and then we'll take it all together. So if here on the left, you guys start. As we sing a song. of grace we didn't deserve it none of us did we're forgiven reinstated people and as God's word has gone out today do you need to recognize where you've not given Jesus word the priority 
and the position of authority in your life? If you do, you just need to repent and to turn to him and to say, Lord, I'll change my attitude and I, I'm going to adjust my mindset and I'm going to value the book. It's my guiding compass. Maybe you need to identify some false idea that you've been listening to that gets your eyes off Jesus. Present-day culture is yelling at us to get our eyes off Jesus and to follow other idols. And if that's had an impact on you, you've got to get back to Jesus. Scripture, the Lord. Maybe you need to prioritise a daily quiet time where you soap yourself up. Let God's word do its work in you as you, as you uh, serve him. Now, at a profound level, accept difference. Cover your brother's weakness and forgive any trespass that's been committed against you as you have been forgiven. Let us eat and drink in Jesus' name. been a joy to share with you, gone a little bit over, probably won't be invited back because of that, <laughs> but um, for some of you, if you would like a copy of this book, I'll be at the back and the other ones are there as well, mostly this one here, so God bless you. Thank you so much Bill for sharing with us, um, I just love that notion of of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, not a disciple of everyone else, of him being our true north, and that's our heart as well. just want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 15 as we finish. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, stand steadfast, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Bless you as you go out into your weeks. And, uh, yeah, grab, grab one of Bill's books as you leave as well. And uh, grab a cup of coffee and, and, and fellowship together. Lord bless you.